Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The vast amphitheatre was filled to the last seat, and beyond it, rich and poor, young and old, sat shoulder to shoulder, awaiting the message of this new gospel. Some were there from curiosity, some from interest, some from fear. But around and about were thousands, young, eager, and virile, who were there from devotion to their leader, his policy, and the movement. Pride of race, love of country, loyalty, hope. All these and more were reflected in their ardent faces and shining eyes. For the first time, I realized this was no passing whim, no temporary excitement. What then was it? What was it, Dominic? That was Lieutenant Colonel Sir Thomas More, who was the Conservative MP for Air, and he had been in the Albert Hall in April 1934 watching the rally of the British Union of Fascists. Yes. So, Tom, our sister podcast, The Rest is Politics, often plays at the Albert Hall, doesn't it? They're very similar enterprises, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd enjoy that. So, <laughs> Well, yes, but before we get on to kind of venue-based jokes, we should probably wait to see whether the British Union of Fascists ever appeared in venues that we have appeared in. So let's That's just... true. That's true. So, Sir so Thomas More, I'll tell you this, he was the MP for Air. Having written that, he was the MP for Air until 1964. So he was the MP for air when the Beatles were visiting the United States. Yeah, but what's even more extraordinary, so, you know, the leader of the um, British Union of Fascists, spoiler alert, was Sir Oswald Mosley, and he was popping up on British chat shows in the 70s, and his wife, Lady Mosley, former Diana Mitford, she was popping up on interviews as well, and as late as 1989, she was the guest on Desert Island Discs, where one of her eight discs was a whiter shade of pale. Oh, no. <laughs> the, uh, do you think she did that deliberately? It's a jaw-dropping, one of the most shocking radio... I listened to it last night because we will be coming to the Mitfords in due course. We certainly will. Because we're going to be doing four episodes on British fascism. Yeah. So, Dominic, very much your choice. <laughs> it was my choice. <laughs> it was my choice. Yeah, thanks for that, Tom. <laughs> People can interpret that. You love a British fascist. <laughs> anyway, anyway, they want... But it's such an interesting topic, isn't it? It is an interesting topic. I mean, we will be talking about the whole sweep of British fascism through to the end of the Second World War and with the in the persona of, you know, Diana Mosley, 
um, who you were listening to on Desert Island Dicks beyond. I mean, she is still saying some quite disturbing things in the 1980s. Hitler is so charming. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> such, such beautiful hands. She doesn't say that Hitler had beautiful hands, does she? Beautiful hands. The most charming manners. Oh, no. Oh, God. Right. Well, you've got that to look forward to. Um, Tom's uh, enormous repertoire of Mitford impersonations. <laughs> and do you know what her luxury item was? Uh, her luxury item. A soft pillar. A soft pillow, was that? <laughs> a soft pillar. It wasn't like a Mauser or something. No, it wasn't. It was a soft pillow. <laughs> that's good. Okay. I mean, that's actually a pretty, that's not a fascist luxury necessarily, I wouldn't have said. Very useful for killing princes at the tower. Oh, very good. Right. Now, some listeners may think British fascism oxymoron because fascism could never have worked in Britain. And I think people who believe that would say, oh, British people have a, you know, an inherent love of liberty, a reverence for parliamentary democracy. They have a distrust of uniforms, going back to their long-standing distrust of standing armies in Britain. And, of course, the famous sense of humour, which means that we would always laugh at paramilitaries and um, authoritarian groups. And I think, I'm sure you'll agree with me, Tom, that that's rubbish. Don't you? Do you think that's rubbish? So the definitive book on this is Hurrah for the Black Shirts by Martin Pugh. And Hurrah for the Black Shirts was obviously a, a notorious headline in the Daily Mail, which did back the Black Shirts for, what, a six-month period, a year? can't remember. Yeah. And he makes the case that fascism was much more of a threat to Britain than, than most people have thought. I wasn't entirely convinced by it, I have to say. I, I do think that British parliamentary democracy, it may not be that people in Britain have a kind of inherent devotion to parliamentary democracy, but I think the frameworks of it, the way that it is very hard for people in a first-past-the-post system for kind of radical fringes to seize control of the commanding heights. I do think that it made it exceedingly unlikely yeah. that fascists would ever come to power in Britain. I think it's unlikely that they would come to power, but I don't think fascism is inherently un-British because actually some of the roots of fascism that we talked about, for example, in our podcast about the rise of the Nazis were British. I mean, one of the authors that uh, Hitler most admired, Houston Stuart Chamberlain, was British and was writing in part, his anti-Semitism was driven in part by his hatred of Benjamin Disraeli and the liberals. And the fact that Disraeli was Jewish, was that of course, a, a, exactly. a rootless cosmopolitan? Was that the kind of part exactly. of the vibe? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that is part of the, uh, the vibe, as you put it. But also, I think a lot of those ingredients that we talked about in, in the Nazis episode one that we did earlier in the year, they were there in Britain in the late Victorian Edwardian period in just as pronounced, although slightly different ways, to how they were in Germany. I mean, so many of the elements of, of fascism in Germany and Italy are present in Britain. So fascism as a generational revolt against the old, fascism as an expression of contempt for the failures of parliamentary democracy, fascism as a reaction to the First World War. There are a couple of elements in Britain that I think are distinctive. So one is that British fascism very, very strongly emphasizes women. And that's something that we'll come to when we do the podcast about the Mitfords. Because, of mm -hmm. course, they're so prominent in the, in the movement and in the popular memory of the movement. I think the other fascinating thing about Britain specifically is um, the way in which British fascism could have been perceived at various points as being, this will sound so weird to many listeners, as being progressive, as being anti-capitalist, as appealing to people who would otherwise have voted Labour. Of course, Oswald Mosley comes to fascism from the Labour Party. Yes. I mean, you slightly see that in the way that the far right in Europe at the moment, so Marine Le Pen, I guess, would be the obvious example, yeah. who, who has, I know that she has repudiated much that her father represented, but obviously comes from that 
French fascist tradition. Those are the wellsprings of, of her party. But at the same time, is clearly appealing to people on the left. Yeah. So there is absolutely that strand. But a, another strand within British fascism, and it's definitely there in, in German fascism as well, but I think it's particularly strong in British fascism, is um, environmentalism, a concern with, I, I suppose, the blood, but also the soil of Britain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wildlife, it's trees, a sense that there should properly be a communion with the very essence of the natural world. Um, and that's also, I think, a bit unsettling. You were reminding me that uh, that much-loved children's book, Tarka the Otter, one of those classic sort of fictions of the English countryside for children. The author of that, Henry Williamson, who had fought in the First World War, he, of course, flirted with fascism, didn't he? He did. Yes, absolutely. He did. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the, what I mean about the roots of, of fascism. So as you say, Martin Pugh in his book, Hurrah for the Black Shirts, he lists a whole series of, of things that have analogues in Germany that in Germany look like really important ingredients of the rise of Nazism. Of course, in Britain, they don't lead quite to the same place, so we don't notice them so much, so we've forgotten about them. So we forget, for example, that Britain before the First World War was in many ways not a very democratic country, that only six out of 10 men could vote and no women at all could vote. So in other words, the idea that there's this inbuilt reverence for democracy, I don't think quite stands up. That Britain, like Germany, has this deep sense of kind of medieval nostalgia. You know, this looking back to the vanished past, particularly the Middle Ages, Arthurian fantasies, all of those things that were floating around in Hitler's imagination. They are floating around in the imagination of loads of people in Britain. I mean, the most obvious example who we've done a podcast about, who is not by any means a fascist and hates fascism, is J.R.R. Tolkien. So in his backward-lookingness, he's actually anti-capitalist, isn't he? He doesn't like development. He loves the countryside. He hates the modern world. He's not an enormous fan of modern mass democracy. So this is one of the things that also, it does seem to me, a, a fascist dog that doesn't bark in the night, is that Tolkien is very into the idea of, of sacred monarchy, mm -hmm. uh, swords, holy swords, all this kind of thing, that with just a nudge of the gear stick could come to seem fascist, because Himmler, of course, is obsessed with all this stuff, all this Arthurian mythology, the Wagnerian things. But Britain, which is the home of King Arthur, yeah. actually never really seems to have taken a fascist form, that obsession with Arthurian myth. But there are good reasons for that, Tom. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I think there are two very obvious reasons why that dog doesn't bark. And they are contingent. They are that Britain doesn't lose the First World War. Of course, well, we'll be coming to that. And that the Great Depression is nowhere near as intense in Britain as it is in most other Western countries. And perhaps that it ha already has a monarchy as well. Maybe. So there's something we talked about with the rise of the Nazis was the fascination with hygiene or with race. I mean, that is absolutely present in Britain. If you look at periodicals and books from the 1890s and 1900s, they're full of stuff about racial rejuvenation, degeneracy. You know, we've lost a sense of organic national unity. Cosmopolitan liberalism has undermined... The, the, the virility of the race. I mean, you used the word, that guy used the word virility, didn't he? Describing the meeting in the Albert Hall, absolute obsession with that. And that links to the other element, which is anti Semitism. There is quite a lot of anti Semitism in Britain before the First World War. We'll come on to this later when we talk about um, the Battle of Cable Street in the East End, the confrontation between fascists and anti fascists in the 1930s. But, you know, if you open a book by Hilaire Belloc or G.K. Chesterton, written in the 1900s, there's loads of stuff there about um, the cosmopolitan Jews, yeah, about Jews in Russia. So Chesterton, kind of Catholic apologist, is, I think, strikingly anti-Semitic. But at the same time, he is very strong against eugenics. 
which yeah. most people in Britain are George Bernard Shaw famously kind of obsessed by. Yes, and so Mary Stopes, who becomes uh, one of the kind of the groundbreaking leading figures in favour of that. I mean, she becomes a big fan of Hitler. She's sending him volumes of terrible poetry and all kinds of things. <laughs> well, maybe you should read out some. When you do the Mitfords, you could read out some of Mary Stopes' poetry. We love a bad poem on the rest of history. We do, we do. So the thing there's a general culture of all this kind of stuff. Actually, John Carey, great literary critic in his book, The Intellectuals and the Masses, which is basically a massive dissection of the Bloomsbury group and their kind of predecessors. The most Sandbrook <laughs> book not written by Dominic Sandbrook ever written. He He's very good on the ways in which their kind of cultural imagination feels very proto-fascist. I mean, that doesn't necessarily, of course, mean they are fascists, but it just means that fascism, the ideas of fascism, are not as alien and, and unfamiliar and unsettling as people might think. Well, the cooking ingredients are there, but you yes. still need people to make the meal. You do, exactly. Well, you need the, the right circumstances. And actually, all of this is turbocharged by war, not the Great War, actually, but the Boer War. So this is the really interesting thing, that actually all of these things get a massive boost from Britain's poor performance at the beginning of the Boer War, 1899 to 1902. There's a particular week where the British lose three battles to the Boers called the Black Week. And after that, there's this massive upsurge of columns and sort of self-flagellating diatribes about national degeneracy. That basically, we have become an industrialized urban people, and we've lost our national spirit, our virility, and we need this new new spirit. And there's this huge cult in the early 1900s of what's called national efficiency. So basically, loads of politicians sign up to it. There's a National Service League set up under Lord Roberts, sponsored by Roger Kipling, um, that has 100,000 members that are calling for a national service, compulsory national service, so that young men, all these deracinated, pallid young men of the cities, will be turned into fighting men for Britain. And obviously, the most famous example, Tom, is the Boy Scouts. So yeah. the Boy Scouts set up 1908. It's inspired by the Mafeking Cadet Corps that uh, Sir Robert Baden-Powell had seen in the Boer War. And so this, I think, that oh, British people don't like people marching around in uniforms. I mean, it's nonsense. There are lots of people marching around in uniforms in the 1900s. We talked about this in our episodes on um, the build-up of the First World War in the context of our Irish episodes. Yes, exactly. Kind of paramilitary bodies in Ireland and starting to cross to Great Britain. Yeah. They were absolutely rifle clubs. The Ulster volunteers, as Stan Jackson was telling us in one of our Irish episodes, there are volunteers in, in places like Liverpool, Glasgow, Newcastle, and so on, who say that if, if home rule is forced upon the counties of Ulster, then they will be justified in taking up arms against what they see as a, an illegitimate liberal government. And Dominic, what is, what is the role of sport in this? The cult of, of manliness, boxing and... It's absolutely part of it, Tom, that um, to me, British fascism, given the abysmal electoral performance of British fascists, it's fascinating how much this subject has opened up this window into early 20th century Britain. But it's also that there are so many links with other subjects that we've covered on The Rest is History. So I was thinking about King Solomon's Mines, H. Ryder Haggard, and the fiction of empire, and this obsession with manliness, with proving yourself. And obviously, sport completely reflects that, doesn't it? The, yeah. the 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 idea that I mean sport is conceived organized sport is conceived to get the workers of the factories and the cities out and you know breathing the fresh air and being virile young men again 
all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's not necessarily sinister. I mean, no, people are still doing uh, arguing for right. that today. The idea that participation in sport is necessarily going to lead to fascism. Agreed. Just like Tom, I completely agree with you. Just like loving the countryside, disliking cities, being a Boy Scout, all of these other things, none of them are in themselves at all sinister. I mean, they're perfectly reasonable. You know, you might not agree with them necessarily. You might not want to be a Boy Scout. And you might love cities, but. To have those views is not a sign that you are, you know, you're not on the road that leads to Auschwitz or something. But as you said, there are lots of interesting ingredients around. So the idea that your enemies, your political opponents are illegitimate, are subversive, are part of an enemy within. Just to remind people who listen to the Ireland episodes, in 1912, the leader of the Conservatives, Andrew Bonalore, described the Liberal government as a revolutionary committee which is seized by fraud upon despotic power. And he says, in giving home rule to Ireland, they are destroying the British constitution. People will be justified in doing anything to resist them, including force. So in other words, that could be, in different circumstances, the beginning of a story that would have very bloody consequences in the interwar years. Of course, it doesn't, or not not as bloody as it could have been, because Britain wins the First World War. But in different circumstances, I think um, there would have been a very different kind of outcome, don't you? Don't you think the ingredients are there? I do. We've absolutely agreed that that it's defeat in the First World War that is the the kind of the, the precondition for what happens in Germany. And so conversely, you could argue the fact that Britain isn't defeated in the First World War mean that these ingredients by and large just remain the ingredients. Just before we come to the First World War and the, its aftermath, a question about British attitudes to foreigners. Yeah. So obviously Britain is ruling an enormous empire and the justification for British rule, particularly of non-white populations, is often couched in overtly racist terms. So that presumably is a part of the mix. And also, when people talk about degeneracy, in the 30s, what they're talking about there are Jews. Yeah, It's Jews, by and large, who are being accused of, of a degenerate element within the fabric. They're seen as bacilli, as noxious microbes within the body politic of Germany. Is there anything of that going on in Britain beforehand? Yes. I mean, we'll come to this later on in episode three when we talk about the Battle of Cable Street in the East End. But yes, you're absolutely right. There is an Aliens Act passed in, I think, 1904, 1905. I can't remember the exact date to try and limit the immigration of Eastern European Jews who are fleeing the pogroms in the Russian Empire. It's very localized. So in London, particularly in Leeds, in Manchester, the places where large numbers of Eastern European Jews settle, refugees, where they settle. There are people trying to stir it up. There are people complaining. You know, all the language that is so familiar, people talking about mobs and swarms and using, as you say, all that medicalized language about bacilli and all that stuff. So that is all there. It's not nationwide because in most, you know, most places are untouched by this debate, but it is absolutely there in the kind of national conversation. So, so yes. There's also, in the build-up to the First World War, there's an anxiety about foreign spies, isn't there? Yes, so there's a very, yeah. a very funny line in um, Martin Pugh's uh, Hurrah for the Black Shirts, again, actually about the Daily Mail. The press magnet Alfred Harmsworth invited readers of the Daily Mail to report sightings of suspicious foreigners and advertised likely invasion routes which invariably passed through towns where the mail circulation required a boost. Well, I mean, we've talked about that before. So that's about um, 
I can't remember how he pronounced his name. I think it's William Lequex. He was this guy who specialized in invasion literature. And um, his books, as you say, were serialized in the mail and they were predicting German invasions and stuff. It was being stopped at Dorking. Exactly. Dorking Gap. Exactly. Of course, you know, to increase circulation, to get people excited, the places that were German battles and things were places where there'd be lots of readers. Because obviously they would really, they would, you know, Surbiton is under attack from German forces. But yes, there's this sort of, I think there's the fear of enemies without and enemies within. And the enemies within fear, you're absolutely right that this is a dog that doesn't bark. And I think largely because Britain wins the First World War. But I think it's remarkable how even though Britain wins the, the, um, the First World War, the dog doesn't go away. So during the First World War, there is loads of stuff about enemies within. But now it's chiefly Germans, isn't it? This is why the House of Saxe-Coburg changes its name to the House of Windsor, for instance. But it's not just Germans. It's German, especially towards the end of the war, it becomes this, what people see as this unholy nexus of Germans, Jews, Bolsheviks, obviously, after the Russian Revolution, and sort of fellow travellers. I don't necessarily want to say the British left, because that makes it sound like you're talking about people within the Labour Party. It's often, there's a famous thing called the Black Book, that is compiled by a guy called Harold Spencer, who's an anti-Semite who's been thrown out of army intelligence. And he compiles this book in 1917, which is a list of 47,000 people. That's a lot of people, <laughs> including cabinet ministers, cabinet ministers' wives, senior liberal politicians, and so on. And it says these people are all, and this is the word they use, these people are all perverts. And they, are, they have been blackmailed by the Germans, or they're working with the Germans. And there's this huge conspiracy. Germans are in it. The worldwide jury is in it. The Bolsheviks are in it. So after 1917, that anxiety must get turbocharged. Absolutely turbocharged. And it's often blamed on, on the Jews, isn't it? Uh, the oh, Russian yes. Revolution by kind of conservatives in Britain. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, so I think a fascinating thing is how in the early 1920s, by the way, so much of this, this story is going to be about the 20s. If you've got an idea in your head about the roaring 20s, cocktail bars, the Great Gatsby, all that stuff, put it aside, that is not the case in Britain at all. Britain is a very, very divided, unhappy, war-scarred place in the 20s, very high unemployment, the economy miserable, politics in a complete and utter mess. The middle classes are very upset about taxes. So you mentioned Alfred Harmsworth earlier on. So his brother, Lord Rothermere, he sets up the Anti-Waste League in the 1920s, which is a really good example of how a lot of people on the kind of right of British politics think that the Conservatives have sold out by getting into bed with Lloyd George. They're all part of this kind of parliamentary conspiracy to, to debauch the currency and fleece the middle classes. Just to explain that for people, Lloyd George, Liberal War Prime Minister, and then after the war, basically gets into bed with the Conservatives as a way of keeping himself in power. Yes, and selling peerages. So that's another thing that inflames people. They say these people are actually, you know, these crooks are basically flogging off peerages, places in the House of Lords to their to their rich friends, while we are crippled with the burden of taxes. Strikes have gone through the roof, which they have. So a massive increase in strikes in 1919, 1920, which of course further fuels middle class sort of small C conservative fears of, of Bolshevism. And all of this becomes embedded in the British imagination and focused on the idea of a Jewish conspiracy. So in 1920, 1921, the pages of newspapers like the Times are full of reports, particularly about the protocols of the elders of Zion, which, um, as you will know, Tom, is a kind of a racist, anti-Semitic fantasy that has been floating around for 15, 20 years or so, 
I mean, people were, were swapping copies of the protocols that the elders signed at the Versailles Peace Conference. But which is broadly accepted to be a fake by the 20s. It is accepted to be a fake. So in 1921, the Times runs three articles to say the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a fake. But by giving it so much airtime, they fuel this idea that there is this sort of conspiracy that takes in American financiers. Communists. Communists, sort of liberal politicians, trade union militants, you know, Jews in grimy boarding houses. I'll tell you who's all over this. Yeah. Is John Bucker. I was about to say John Author Bucker. of the 39 Steps and Green Mantle and, you know, thrilling spy stories. But this idea that there are kind of Jewish financiers behind everything evil that's happening and that simultaneously American plutocrats and Soviet Bolsheviks are in cahoots against the British Empire. I mean, it's the motivating idea that powers his thrillers. It is, and not just John, John Buck and Tom. Agatha Christie. Read an Agatha Christie from the 1920s, and there's lots of references to Jewish financiers, to the sort of puppet masters who are controlling you know, strikes in Stockport, but also stuff going on in the newly established Soviet Union, that there's links to Wall Street. I mean, all of this sort of, all these paranoid fantasies. So while that's happening... There is one other factor that you list in the notes that you've sent me for this. Fears of women voters, flappers, lesbians, you've yes. put down. Yeah. And Martin oh. Pugh lists <laughs> some excellent headlines from the mail in the 20s. Men outnumbered everywhere. Why socialists want votes for flappers. Stop the flapper vote folly. Yes. So that's another part as well, I guess. It's absolutely part. And by the way, you quoted in the Daily Mail. I mean, you could have quoted any number of newspapers from the early 1920s. So the Daily Express. The Daily Express says, Britain is full of women with short hair, skirts no longer than kilts, narrow hips and insignificant breasts. This change to a more neutral type can only be accomplished at the expense of the integrity of a woman's sexual organs. So this sort of weird thing where there's a link in people's minds between women having been given the vote and the advent of flappers, flapper kind of fashion, and that there's this sort of tide of lesbianism that is sweeping through Britain, that is somehow, at the back of all these kind of conspiracy theorists' minds, they think this is somehow connected with the great Bolshevik Jewish conspiracy and with the high taxes, the strikes and things that are afflicting British politics in the 1920s. Go on, Tom. Yeah. One thinks of F.A. Mackiston MP uh, and his view on lesbians. They are an evil which is capable of sapping the highest and the best in civilization. So he wouldn't be welcome on Pride March. (laughs) He certainly wouldn't. You quoted Lieutenant Colonel Sir Thomas More. Uh, There's another Tory MP who's a Lieutenant Colonel called More Brabazon. And uh, he says, he tells the House of Commons, there are only three ways of dealing with these perverts, meaning lesbians. This is 1921. One of them is to look on them as frankly lunatics and lock them up for the rest of their lives. Another one is to leave them entirely alone, not notice them and don't advertise them, just pretend they're not there. And the final one is the death sentence. Well, so there's a lot of very pungent views floating yes. around in the 1920s. Okay. And then in 1922, as people look abroad, they suddenly see the emergence of a character who will be, I would argue, the single greatest inspiration to the British fascist movement. And we'll find out who that is, Tom, after the break. See you then. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are looking at British fascism and trying to explore the question of whether Britain might ever have turned fascist. And Dominic, we were talking about the idea that the ingredients are there, but of course, you, you, know, you need an oven and you need a recipe, and you need someone to make the meal. I feel this, this metaphor is spiraling This metaphor off. was very early, yeah. Hold with me. So in the early 1920s, looking abroad, the British see a master chef emerge right. in Italy, don't they? They do. So that's Mussolini. So 1922 is when Mussolini, he famously, he doesn't march on Rome. He lets his supporters march on Rome for him while he stays behind. But it had already been agreed, hadn't it? It had been agreed, exactly. So essentially, it's it's about showboating. It's about yes. control of the narrative, all that kind of thing. I mean, Italy, of course, is another democracy. With a king. With a king. And there are lots of people in Britain who are Mussolini comes to power. So first of all, it's really important to emphasise with all of this. They don't know what we know. They don't know where the story will lead. And of course, Mussolini is violent. They know that Mussolini is violent. But I mean, there are loads of people who admire you know, the communists in the Soviet Union. And they're very violent. I mean, there are millions of people dying in the Russian Civil War. So when people, I think, read the stories about Mussolini's violence, about, you know, trade unionists being forced to drink castor oil or being beaten up or, in, or indeed killed, they may well think, oh gosh, shocking. But I don't think they think this is barbarism, you know, beyond the scope of the human imagination. Also, there is a war going on in Ireland. And there have been paramilitary organizations in Ulster and in the rest of Ireland that have made the running and have torn a chunk out of the United Kingdom. So it's yeah. not like the idea of political violence is something alien to the British way of life. No, 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 of course. That's a really, that's a very good point, actually. So, um, I mean, one thing we, we haven't really talked about is how, you know, a key part of fascism is paramilitary politics, but there's been lots of paramilitary politics in Britain in the last 20 years or so. The Ulster volunteers, the paramilitary groups before the First World War, the black and tan, the use of the black and tan auxiliaries in Ireland. There are hundreds of thousands of demobilized officers, soldiers who miss the First World War, who feel you know, bored, listless in the climate of the 1920s. This is the plot of the Bulldog Drummond thrillers that I used to love when I was a boy, which are very, very anti-Semitic, very anti-Bolshevik, very paranoid. And they're about Bulldog Drummond is a guy who is 
drifting around, looking for a purpose. I mean, obviously, this is Mussolini's appeal in Italy. And I think there are lots of people in Britain who think Mussolini is a tremendously impressive man who has actually given Italy a you know direction. He's anti-communist, all this stuff. So Sir Douglas Haig. So commander in, in the First World War. Commander in the First World War. You know, great celebrity in Britain. Much loved celebrity in Britain in the 1920s. He said of Mussolini, what a man. He really is exceptional. And that's actually typical. Go on, Tom. So you're itching to say something. Well, I just wanted to put the counterpoint, though, that the British regard the Italians as being somewhat comical and hysterical and prone to jumping up and down and waving their arms about. Yeah. And in that sense, Mussolini does conform to that very negative stereotype. And fascism, you know, the name that he gives to his movement, is a foreign movement. So is there also a sense that one of the reasons why fascism perhaps doesn't take off in Britain is that it's not a British invention? And the British are reluctant to adopt something that, you know, it has been taken up by a comical people like the Italians as they see them. I think that's actually a very astute point, and it's one reason why Oswald Mosley in the 1930s was actually quite keen to downplay in public the associations with Italian. So they initially, when he set up his movement in the 1930s, they used the Fasquets as a symbol and they ditch it for the kind of lightning bolt. And he's always saying, actually, there's nothing alien about our ideas. Our ideas are true British political values. So uh, the emphasis on the king, which obviously is, I mean, there's a king in Italy, but they never talk about scrapping the monarchy. They always say the king will actually have more power in a fascist Britain because they want to yeah, reassure very people. Very Aragorn. Very Aragorn. Yes, very Aragorn. Of course, it's really important, two things. One, Mussolini comes to power at the point when conservative unease about Lloyd George is at its height. So Lloyd George is presiding over this coalition with a lot of the Tory bigwigs. And lots of grassroots Tories think this is a massive stitch up by corrupt politicians, which is obviously the idea that parliament has become corrupted and corroded and, and all of the, you know, it's just a talking shop of people feathering their own nest. I mean, you hear that all the time now, don't you? You do. Well, and you hear conservatives now say, you know, we've had a conservative government for however many years, but it's not real conservatism. Which is exactly, exactly, Tom. I was thinking that a lot, actually, when I was reading about this, that there are parallels with now. There are lots of conservatives in the early 1920s who say, we've been in power for yonks, but actually Lloyd George obviously isn't a conservative. And our corrupt leaders colluding with his selling appearances. He's given the stuff. vote to all these flappers. Yeah, giving the lesbians. vote to all these flappers to keep themselves in office. Whereas the true voice of the British patriot is being silenced. So there's that. And there's also the idea that um, Mussolini is a bulwark against communism. You cannot overstate the anxiety on the British right about Bolshevism in the 1920s. So you quoted from the Mail earlier on. Uh, the Mail is typical of lots of papers in Britain in the 1920s that look at Mussolini and they say, you know, a hard man, no doubt, but a really important shield against the advance of Bolshevism. I mean, Winston Churchill famously, Churchill goes to Rome in 1927 and he says, I could not help being charmed by Signor Mussolini's gentle and simple bearing and by his calm, detached poise, in spite of so many burdens and dangers. And then he says to Mussolini, if I'd been an Italian, I'm sure that I should have been wholeheartedly with you from start to finish in your triumphant struggle against the bestial appetites and perversions of Leninism. And there are loads of people who you can sort of see why Churchill would say that, Tom, because if you have that late Victorian imperial mindset. You quite like fighting. You like virility and all that stuff. Just absolutely emphasize throughout this series that 
people did not know where it was going to go. Yeah. Today, fascism is an absolute bogey word because it is freighted with the blood of six million Jews killed in the Holocaust and countless million others killed in war and persecution. But at this point in the 1920s, that is all well in the future. Yeah. It's really difficult, I think, when you have to try and um, kind of think back into the shoes of people who don't know what's happening. I think actually this is really, really difficult because the very word fascism yeah, I agree. just seemed, you know, it smoulders with sulfur. I agree. But presumably it doesn't have that inherent sulfurous quality. Well, remember that Mussolini at that point is not actually especially anti-Semitic. He's certainly no more anti-Semitic than many of the British people who admire him. And it, of course, he is violent. And of course, we look at Mussolini now and we say, what a disgusting man he was. You know, violent, rapacious, uh, sexually predatory, bombastic, you know, all these kinds of things. In the 1920s, the world has a lot of dictators. And if you'd said to people in Britain, well, you know, where is the evil located? Which is the most blood-soaked, most frightening, threatening regime? I think a large proportion of them, not all of them, of course, but a large proportion would have said unerringly, well, it's in Moscow. And anything that's, that's fighting that, you know, maybe by quite dirty methods, but anything that's fighting that, we should stand with them. I mean, there would have been a load of people who would have said that about Mussolini. Loads of the conservative middle classes, obviously lots of people in the aristocracy right. and so on. And, and so you start to get people who want to emulate Mussolini, and that's when you start to get the first British, genuine British fascists. Right. So, so you mentioned the, the aristocracy, and we talked about the Mitfords right at the start of the show. And notoriously, Jessica Mitford becomes a Stalinist, and Unity Mitford becomes a, a Nazi. And there is a sense in which there is an appeal on the extremes, isn't there? Yeah. And yet, in Britain, the centre does hold. Yeah, it does hold. Obviously, there are, there are communists in Britain. There's an emergent fascist movement in Britain as well. But by, you know, the 20s are a kind of terrible decade marked by you know, strikes and poverty and all kinds of things. But it doesn't go fascist. It doesn't go communist. No. Parliamentary democracy does hold. I mean, I think always the risk with, emphasize, with, with doing an episode focused on fascism is that too big a concentration on it might lead us to over-egg it. Don't you think? I, I do think so. You could say, Tom, now those people have been calling for this podcast for a long time. So that you could say that actually the, this whole series on British fascism is actually a disguised series about Stanley Baldwin. Yeah. So Stanley Baldwin, who becomes conservative leader, who's the prime minister three times in the interwar years, who is the man who brings down Lloyd George in 1922. He makes a speech at the Carlton Club to the Tories and says, Lloyd George is corrupt. He's a dynamic force who will crush us, who will destroy us if we don't you know, get rid of him. Baldwin, who sort of presents himself as the soul of the British middle classes and of kind of middle England, he actually, his, his emollient political persona, the way in which he's prepared actually to make space for the newly emerging Labour Party and then actually to work with people from the Labour Party in the 1930s, you could argue that the defeat of fascism is a victory for a very unglamorous, mundane, suburban Baldwinism. And to some extent, Ramsay MacDonald, the leader of the Labour Party. So the centre does hold, as you say, and it holds in part because Britain actually has some, I think, contrary to the stereotype of the interwar years, Britain actually has some quite good politicians who know what the public want, who are building houses, who are doing their best to keep the economy on track, even though the economy is in a complete and utter mess. And of course, Britain hasn't been humiliated in the First World War. It's come out yeah. of the First World War financially much weaker, but it actually has more colonies than it started with. So people don't feel 
the burning resentment and victimhood that they did in Germany. Having said all that, on the fringes, fascism is taking hold in Britain. And it's, I mean, it, it's a minor, absolutely a minority pursuit, right? But it is taking root. So, so to go back to what you were saying about how hard it is to think ourselves back into this moment, when you look, read about the very first fascist groups, it's actually very difficult to see them as terribly sinister because they're just absolutely comical and eccentric. So the very first one, the British Fascisti, was founded in May 1923 by somebody who, in such a 1920s way, she was called the Man Woman. Her name was Rota Lintorn Orman. So many of the people in this story, by the way, have military connections. So she's the granddaughter of Field Marshal Sir John Linton Simmons. Before the First World War, Rota Linton Orman had been absolutely passionate about the Scouts. She joined the Girl Scouts in 1909, very early, and she'd founded and led her own troop in Bournemouth. Come on, girls. Yeah, South Coast, by the she way. She liked that. Uh, I don't imagine her having that deeper voice. Like Mrs. Trunchbull. But she was born in 1895, Tom. So she was a teenager at this point. So she wouldn't have spoken like that. I think she's girls. Yes, I think she's posher. Then in the First World War, she serves with tremendous distinction. She works in Serbia with the Scottish Women's Hospital Corps. She's a commandant in the British Red Cross Motor School. There are lots of women, by the way, who love the First World War, who really get stuck in. It gives them opportunities you know, a chance to do things that in normal life they wouldn't be able to do. She loves wearing military dress. You know, she loves just hanging around with women, doing stuff, not being hidebound by the Edwardian conventions. She comes back from the war, like so many people, she thinks "Ah, nothing is going to be as good again. She goes off to a dairy farm in Somerset. This is an amazing story. One day she's weeding her garden when she has a revelation, Tom, like a divine revelation. I know you love a divine revelation. I don't think this is divine, but she has a revelation about the terrible threat being posed to Britain by Bolsheviks, socialists, and foreigners. And how does this revelation come? I think she's just weeding. Weeding is quite boring. Well, the weed, but a weeding is a, you know, you're, you're, you're cleaning your garden. You're getting There's rid of... There's a metaphor of, there, isn't it? Yeah, there is a metaphor there. So she thinks, and she's obviously read about Mussolini, and she thinks, do you know what? I'll do it. No one else has done it. I'll do it. And so she sets up this movement, the British Fascisti. She gets a, another ex-military person who's a, a man, Brigadier General Robert Blakeney. He'd been the general manager of the Egyptian State Railway. And he comes in, he says, I'll run the organization for you, Miss Linda Norman. He says, this is basically the grown-up version of the Boy Scout movement. He says, like the Scouts, we uphold the same lofty ideals of brotherhood, service, and duty. And the people that pile in, I say pile in, you know, both of the people that pile in. All 10 of them. Yeah. They are military people or landed gentry or, or aristocracy. So they are Brigadier General Sir Ormond Winter, Brigadier General Erskine Tullock, Colonel Sir Charles Byrne, MP, Admiral John Armstrong. Is there a sense that often these are people who've come back from lengthy service, maybe in the war yes. or maybe in the colonies, and they come back to Britain and they find that it's full of flappers and lesbians? Yes, there is absolutely that sense, Tom. That, again, you mentioned John Buchan. Country's going to the dogs. How often does that happen at the beginning of a John Buchan book in the 1920s? Yes, coming back from Natal. Yeah. I've been out on the veld. I sat there in London. Feel- big game hunting. I've, I'm feeling very seedy. <laughs> you know, like, yes. I looked at the young men walking. None of them had shot a, you know, a, yeah, an a elephant. elephant in the eye. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're all communists and Jews. Yeah. That is exactly. Limp-wristed. Exactly. Yeah. That is floating around in the popular culture of the 20s. And all these people... I mean, the Earl of Glasgow, some of these people, you just think they've been made up. The Earl Temple of Stowe, the Marquess of Aylesbury, Lord de Clifford. 
So a lot of aristocrats. Lots of aristocrats. And I suppose the other thing, Dominic, that's happening with the aristocracy is that with Lloyd George, who has you know famously, what is it, dukes cost more than dreadnoughts, yes. that um, the primordial hold on the land and power that the hereditary aristocracy had always had is now under attack. Absolutely right. If you're a duke, your life, as you see it, perceive it, is in ruins. You can't get good servants anymore. Your house is crippled by taxes. Papa died five years ago, and the death duties are unbelievable. You're paying high income tax. You don't even believe in income tax at all. You've lost your house in Ireland where you used to go fishing. Your daughter has become a lesbian flapper. All of this kind of stuff. It's all very familiar. Yeah. And these people just think we've lost our political power forever because what's, you know, the Tory party, which is meant to be our party, is led by this bloody awful middle class Baldwin. Humbug. Yeah. Baldwin, yeah. who's practically a socialist. So all these people are drawn to the, to, to the British fascisti. There's also people who just like fighting. So the most famous example of that is a man who we will definitely be talking about a fair bit, who is a man called William Joyce. So he will be best known to people as Lord Haw Haw. So Lord Haw Haw was this guy who was broadcasting German propaganda to Britain during the Second World War and ended up, spoiler alert, being executed for it. And he was nicknamed Lord Haw Haw because of the sort of strangulated faux contrived aristocratic way that he spoke. But William Joyce was actually born in Ireland to a kind of a unionist loyalist family. He moved to England with his family after Britain got out of what becomes ultimately the Republic of Ireland. Uh, he had been associated with the Black and Tans. He comes to Dulwich in South London. He feels that he's been cheated. Well, Dulwich, notorious breeding ground of <laughs> very right-wing people. Yeah, Nigel Farage went to school. Nigel Farage. <laughs> As did P.G. Woodhouse, Tom. And P.G. Yes. Woodhouse, of course. Uh, and uh, Raymond Chandler. Really? Did Raymond Chandler go to Dulwich? Or did he teach at Dulwich? He went to Dulwich College. Did he? He was there with, uh, with P.G. Woodhouse, yeah. Do you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, an amazing Dulwich College fact. That is a very good fact. I, mean, I love a public school fact, Tom, as you know. <laughs> I know you do. So uh, William Joyce, he joins the British fascisti, and he likes going and fighting communists in the streets, so, uh, breaking up communist meetings and all this kind of thing. And the British fascisti, they end up calling themselves the British fascists because they realise <laughs> they call themselves the fascisti. Sounds a bit foreign, doesn't it? It does sound a little bit foreign. Yeah. They hold meetings in, in Birmingham in Hyde Park, and they will draw up to 5,000 people. So not huge, but not nothing. What's interesting is that even at this point, there are particular strongholds, so it won't surprise anybody, given how many retired colonels we've been impersonating, and that the South Coast, South Coast Resorts is a good place, the cities, London, Birmingham, and so on. What's also interesting is there's a big overlap with Glasgow the, as well, I gather. Glasgow, yeah. Well, Glasgow has this sectarian politics, doesn't it? It also has, you know, a sizable professional middle class who might vote conservative. And there is a big overlap between British fascists, actually not just the British fascisti, but also going right into the 1930s. There is an absolute overlap with the conservatives. So a lot of these people would also be members of the Conservative Party. Indeed, the British fascisti tell their members at elections, you know, they don't stand for election. They say at elections, you should vote conservative and you should always, you know, be loyal to king and country. And there are Tory MPs, like there's a guy, a Birmingham MP, another MP, he's an MP till 1950 called Patrick Hannon. He is on the fascist grand council. He hosts British fascist dinners in Birmingham. His, he books house of commons rooms for fascist meetings. And he sees no 
conflict between being a regular conservative MP and being a member of the British fascists. So it's a bit like being a, ma- a Freemason or something. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty much right. Now we're going to run out of time. So just um, on these very early fascists, what's really interesting is that it was set up by a woman. And I think women are, from the very beginning, very prominent in the fascist movement. So like all sort of fringe extremist movements, it splits quite quickly. So by 1924, <laughs> it's only been going a year, by 1924, there's another group called the National Fascisti. They are more militant. They think of the British Fascisti as sellouts. <laughs> maybe, they're, <laughs> maybe they're part of the right. conspiracy. The National Fascisti only have 60 members, but one of them, Tom, is somebody I know you're very keen to talk about on the podcast. Uh, you're yes. very keen to come back to her, so we won't give away all her story. She is a woman called Valerie Arkell Smith, who at various points trades as Sir Victor Barker, <laughs> Colonel Barker, and Captain Barker. A great enthusiast for boxing. Yeah. And she likes the name Barker, I think it's fair to say. So she is a character, it's fair to say. She's from the Channel Islands. She ends up marrying a woman called Elfrida, who believes that she's a man. Valerie Arkell Smith tells her, my name is Victor Barker, and I've been very badly injured in the Great War. War wound. So if you well, very like Downton Abbey. So if you spot any any unexpected physical characteristics, this is because <laughs> yes. of my injuries <laughs> in the First World War. They get married and they live in Brighton. And at some point in 1926, Valerie Arkell Smith, aka Sir Victor Barker, she sees a letter addressed to somebody called Barker, and it's actually not to her, and it's from the National Fascisti. You know, thank you for inquiring about membership. You are member 6,423 or whatever. And she thinks, oh, I'll join. So she ends up joining the National Fascisti. So Dominic, I think that that is an amazing teaser for an episode because, spoiler alert, Colonel Barker ends up as a fairground attraction in Blackpool alongside the vicar of Stukey, who ends up being eaten by a lion. <laughs> so we're going to do an episode on Britain's two top fairground attractions. So he, she... Yeah, will be part of that. All right, Tom, you're fascinated by this story, <laughs> but but um, also uh, because we're running out of time, I want you to give you a chance to talk about this guy who who's something to do with camels. <laughs> you put down yeah. camels. So one mother splinter group that is formed is called the Imperial Fascist League. That's that was founded in 1928. Are you familiar with them, Tom? Uh, no. Great. So uh, there's a guy called Arnold Spencer Lease. He is a vet. He's an experienced vet. He's an expert on camels. He'd been investigating camel diseases before the First World War. He is the world expert on the health of camels. His book, his masterwork, was published the same year he set up the Imperial Fascist League. And his masterwork, it's a, it's a better read, I think it's fair to say, than Mein Kampf. It's called A Treatise on the One-Humped Camel in Health and Disease. Oh, is it still used? I mean, he was absolutely the top man in the world on one-humped wow. camels. Oh, absolutely. But he was also a fascist. But he was also a fascist. He had been reading all of this anti-Semitic stuff in the 1910s, 1920s. He believed that the British aristocracy was being corrupted by Jews because they'd married Jewish heiresses. I'll give you an example of that. And this also is relating back to some episodes that we've just been doing, namely the Oscar Wilde trial, in which the Prime Minister, Lord Rosebery, appeared. And he had married Hannah Rothschild, very fabulously wealthy heiress, and of course, Jewish. And their son, Lord Dalmany, when he was born... Rosebery apparently said, oh, he looks Jewish and hated him from that point on. But this didn't stop Lord Dalmany from becoming both an MP and captain of uh, Surrey County Cricket Club and leading them to victory 
in the championship. Crikey. And it was Lord Dalmany who got the Prince of Wales to agree that they could have the ostrich feathers, which were the, you know, the symbol of the Prince of Wales, which we talked about in our Hundred Years War episode. So everything connects, everything connects, connects. to serve as the emblem for Surrey County Cricket Club. Is that right? But I mentioned that because this was an example of the kind of the paranoia around the aristocracy. Yeah. That, you know, ancient British titles, that they were marrying Jewish heiresses and therefore the aristocracy was being corrupted was the, the, the point of view of the... Uh, Arnold Lees would not have enjoyed watching Surrey Cricket Club then, Tom. It's fair to say. No. Buried himself in his book on But the if camels. you were a Surrey fan, absolutely you would, as I am. So, hurrah for Lord Dalmany. So the Imperial fascists, they dress in very extravagant uniforms. They have a black shirt. Black shirt, Tom. That's going to anticipate uh-huh. something to come. They have khaki breeches and they were putties. They wear a beret and a cummerbund, which I think is... I think no movement would ever come to power in Britain wearing berets and cummerbunds, personally. Well, there you see you have your P.G. Woodhouse, their comic... Yes, I do. I mean, they're sinister because they're very anti-Semitic, the Imperial Fascist League, but there are not many of them. And I think it's fair to say, you get to the end of the 1920s, the general strike has happened, all kinds of kind of political and economic turbulence, but they have got absolutely nowhere. The system is too resilient. And also, they lack what all successful fascist movements have, which is a really convincing, charismatic, articulate, plausible frontman. So the, the, the camel vet is not, it's not, the, not going to cut and it. Nor is Sir Victor Barker with his war wound, or her war wound. <laughs> but then, Tom, at the beginning of the 1930s, they find an extremely plausible front man. In some degree, you might say the perfect front man with a war record, with aristocratic links, a brilliant speaker, a man who comes, would you believe, from the Labour Party. And that is Sir Oswald Mosley, and we'll tell that story next time. Well, that's brilliant, Dominic. Uh, what a, what a, a cliffhanger. Uh, and if you simply can't bear to wait for that and the other two episodes that we'll be recording after that, so Mitford's, Cable Street, all kinds of things to come, then you can listen to them straight away by joining the Rest is History Club. But if you, you, know, if you don't want to do that, then that's fine. They will be coming out on Thursday and then uh, next week. So we will see you either immediately, if you're a member of the Rest is History Club, or on Thursday. Thank you, Dominic, and thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 